Thanks, Dave, for reading uh, God's Word for us this morning. Um, So we're continuing in our series in the Gospel of John, looking at Jesus' encounters with uh, various people and how he listens to them. And so uh, this morning, as we continue in that, I'd love to begin our time just by uh, asking for uh, God's help in understanding his word. We always know this is is a vital part of of getting the most out of his word is is praying and asking for his help. So I'd love to to begin our time together as we look into this passage by doing just that. Uh, Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you have um, shown us in Jesus life that is full of grace and truth. And I pray now as we look at this account in the Gospel of John that we would in fresh ways see who Jesus is and the life that he offers to each and every one of us. And I pray this in Jesus' name by the power of the Holy Spirit for your glory and honor. Amen. One of my favorite films of last year was Boz Lehrman's The Great Gatsby. And I read the book in anticipation of seeing the film, and actually as I read through the book, I was surprised and and struck by how much F. Scott Fitzgerald's uh, description of the roaring 1920s had so many similarities to the 2010s in which we were living. However, what stuck with me after I saw the film, more than anything else, was one of the songs from the soundtrack of the film, Lana Del Rey's Young and Beautiful. Uh, The song is as haunting as it is beautiful, and I think it touches something in us that that we all feel. And so I'd love to begin this morning by just having us take a listen to a part of this song. As the song begins, uh, life is great, Uh, everything she could ever want, but then the chorus, the refrain over and over throughout the song, will you still love me when I'm no longer young and beautiful? Will you still love me when... I've got nothing but my aching soul. She says, I I know you will, I know you will, I know you will, but but then there's still the nagging question, will you still love me when I'm no longer beautiful? And and as I drove home from the theater that night after seeing the film, those words kept echoing in my head as I fell asleep that night. Because like Gatsby, like Daisy Buchanan in the story, like Lana Del Rey in the song, I'm pretty satisfied with my life most of the time. I've got a great family, I have a job that I love, I live in a great neighborhood, but I can't seem to escape this sort of nagging thought on sort of the margins of my mind from time to time, how long can this really last? When is the other shoe going to drop? Can this joy and satisfaction really keep on going. And I think that many, though certainly not all of us, can relate. Most of us, most of the time, are satisfied. Most of our problems are decidedly first world problems. And compared to many in our city, and certainly most people around the world or throughout any other time in history, we have it pretty good here in our neighborhood. Most of the time, we, we think we're happy or, or at least we think that happiness is in our grasp, that it's, it's just one more raise or promotion or family milestone or purchase away, but it's within grasp. And so many of us, myself included, whether we're, we're Christians or not, just aren't really looking for Jesus. And if you are a Christian, maybe you've experienced this as, as you've sought to share your faith with your neighbors and your coworkers or classmates. You've come with answers to questions that they, you thought that people were asking about faith. 
But what you discovered is that for many people, it isn't just that they have unanswered questions. It's that they aren't asking questions at all. They and all too often we are satisfied with life just just as it is. And so how do you share your faith with someone who has life that's all together? Or so it seems. Well, last week we talked about skeptical Nathaniel. And we saw how Jesus encountered him and, and Jesus listened to him. And, and this week, we're going to see that Jesus encounters the satisfied. And again, Jesus listens. In fact, he listens to the unasked questions. He listens to the longings that we didn't even realize we had. Because one day it is all going to run out. And the question that jumps out at me from the story that we just heard read, I think a question for all of us, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, is this. What will you do when the wine runs out? What will you do when the wine runs out? As we look at this account in John's Gospel, we find that Jesus rouses us from our malaise. John, the author of this Gospel, is recording these eyewitness accounts that we were looking at in these eight weeks with one purpose in mind, that we would believe. In fact, the, the word believe occurs 98 times in the Gospel of John. He's writing that we would believe in Jesus. And, and again, last week we saw Jesus with the skeptical Nathaniel. And in future weeks we're going to see him listening to um, those who are grieving, those who are outcast, the religious, But this week we find him listening even to the unasked questions of the satisfied. And so as we look at John 2 this morning, we're going to see first that everybody is thirsty. Then we're going to see that everything ends. And finally that everybody wants more. So first, let's look at the fact that that everyone is thirsty, but we, we often don't always know it. And as the story opens, Jesus and his disciples have have joined Jesus' mother, Mary, at a wedding in Cana. And Cana was another small town in Galilee, not far from Nazareth. And this account picks up the very next day after the account we looked at last week with Jesus and the skeptical Nathaniel. And if you were here last week, you may remember that as that account closed, as it ended, Nathaniel, who was shocked that Jesus knew him even before they had ever met, Jesus says to Nathaniel, you're going to see even greater things than that. Nathaniel didn't have to wait very long to see those greater things. Because John tells us in verse 3 of chapter 2 here that there's a crisis. They have no wine. This is not a good thing at a wedding. Now, running out of wine at a party today certainly is, is a bad enough and even today, running out of food or wine at a, at a wedding is, is a huge embarrassment to both the bride and groom and their families. But, but in the first century, where hospitality was everything, this was about as bad as it gets from a cultural fail. And this would have been something in that tight-knit, small-town village of Cana that would have been remembered and talked about, not just for the next couple of years, but for decades This was a bad deal. 
But at this point, actually in the story, and the passage makes this clear later on, most of the people at the wedding have no idea that the wine is gone. <laughs> they still have wine in their, in their glasses, and as, as far as they know, uh, there's a lot more where that came from. They're still celebrating, not knowing that that's it. You see, everyone is thirsty, but they don't know how much and they don't know how close they are to running out. But Mary knows. We don't know how she knows. Maybe someone at the party told her, but she knows. And she leans over to Jesus and she tells him what's going on. Now, the question here is, did Mary expect Jesus to do a miracle in this moment? Is that what she's asking Jesus for when she says they have no wine? I mean, maybe that's what she's asking for. Um, but probably not. Because you see, it's likely that, that Joseph, Mary's husband, had died at this point, and that Jesus is the oldest son in the family, was the one that Mary had grown to rely upon. And so when she finds out there's a, a crisis here, she's just saying to Jesus, what, what can we do about this? And to our ears, Jesus' response to Mary seems a bit odd at, at best, and, and almost downright rude at worst. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And, and when we hear it, we think that he kind of says it with that kind of tone of, of woman. But Jesus isn't being rude. In, in that cultural context, the statement of kind of direct address uh, was, a, it was a statement of polite distance. It's like, sort of like saying ma'am or, or sir today. But still, it's kind of odd to address your mom as, as ma'am or sir. Uh, well, certainly sir. Uh, <laughs> but odd is to address your, your mom as, as ma'am. But I think what Jesus is saying in this moment is he's saying, look, Mary, I, I'm more than just your son now. As he embarks on his public ministry, he's putting a, a bit of a distance between the two of them. I'm more than just your son. And then after making a kind of a cryptic statement saying his hour has not yet come, Jesus does something completely puzzling and unexpected. He tells the servants who are gathered there, go fill the six stone water jars. Now, I have to wonder in this moment what the servants were thinking. I mean, I wonder if they were kind of whispering, did, did Jesus hear Mary, right? We're out of wine, not, not water. I and mean, we, have, we have plenty of water. And shouldn't we be headed to the liquor store, not, not to the well? I don't think more water is going to keep the party going here. But they obey Jesus even when it doesn't make sense to them. It's not a bad lesson for, for us to learn, doing what Jesus tells us, even when we don't always fully understand why. And the result spectacular. Six 30-gallon jars, that's, that's nearly a thousand bottles of the finest wine that any of them have ever tasted. Jesus saves the party. But, but there's more going on here than, than Jesus just making some of the best wine in the history of the world. What Jesus has done here has deep symbolic significance because in the Bible, wine is regularly a picture of deep satisfaction and joy. And scholars point out that in the ancient Near East, with its scarcity of water, wine was a necessity rather than a luxury. And it therefore easily became an image of sustenance and life. Now, a lot of people think that, that the Bible is anti-wine. Actually, the Bible is just the opposite. The Bible is anti-drunkenness. But wine in the Bible is a picture of deep joy and satisfaction and life. 
And, and while it may seem like an insignificant detail to us at first, did you notice what John tells us the water jars were for? Did you catch it? Look back at, at verse 6. We tend to miss this, but, but scholars don't. Jesus is changing the old order of things. The water jars were ordinarily there to hold water for the Jewish rites of purification. They were there to hold water for the making of the outside of the body clean and acceptable. But Jesus is doing something completely different here. Instead of law and ritual cleansing, we have joy and grace. Instead of something for the outside of the body, we have something that sustains us deep within. It's subtle, but Jesus is saying, I'm providing a new way of being filled. What Jesus is doing here is he's dramatically and symbolically depicting the truth of John chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where John writes, For from Jesus, from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. For the law, and that's what those jars represented, the law, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. But the satisfied, we don't even realize just how empty we really are. And I know this is where I'm at so much of the time. My life is pretty good. My life, I'm pretty satisfied with it. And, and I don't often really know just how deep the longing and emptiness are. It, we, we'd rather not think about it, right? <laughs> we'd rather just not ask the question. But we know it's there, and, and I think there's two ways that we try to fill ourselves, try to satisfy ourselves. Some of us run after the cheap wine uh, of distraction and indulgence. We're living for the, for the next eye device, for the next vacation, the new relationship, for the royals or the chiefs, for KU or MU. But what will you do when the wine runs out? When the newer eye device comes out, when the vacation is over, when the relationships ends, when the team loses. And the second way we try to satisfy ourselves is through sort of the water of religion. We, we try to obey all the rules. We, we work to be a good person. We, we strive to serve our community. You, you work hard. You maintain a flawless reputation. But again, what will you do when the wine runs out? When you, when you fail to keep the rules? When you fall into sin? When, you're, when, you're wor- you're, when your good, hard work is overlooked? When the community isn't that grateful for your service? When your reputation is called into question? You see, either way, cheap wine or legalistic water, we, the satisfied, just don't know how thirsty we are. But, but, but those things, they will satisfy us for a moment. But we just have to keep coming back to the question, what will you do when the water, or rather the wine, runs out? Jesus is saying, I'm a satisfaction you know nothing about. <laughs> you may not be asking, but Jesus is listening. He's listening to the pain, the loneliness, the emptiness underneath the distraction. But the reality is everything, 
ends. But we hate acknowledging it, right? Because apart from Christ, everything does end. And in, in a very real sense, the wine is running out at the party that we know as life. But, but it rarely feels like it, especially to those of us who are younger. And this is the problem with the satisfied. We're pretty comfortable with our lives. And despite that occasional nagging, like, how long can this really keep going on feeling that we talked about at the beginning, we assume that life will continue pretty much as is, with good, if not great, relationships, adequate, if not overflowing bank accounts. I mean, we're, we're getting by pretty well on our own, thanks very much. And we're not really looking for a savior. We don't really feel like we need to be rescued from anything. But everything will come to an end at some point. A friend recently brought this home to me in a powerful and and honestly kind of a depressing way, so I'm going to share it with you this morning, uh, with an exercise. So here's the exercise. A show of hands, how many of you know your great-grandparents' names? Okay, so just a fraction of us. This means that in just a matter of a couple of generations, we will be forgotten. For many of us, our grandparents are so incredibly significant, or have been incredibly significant in our lives, haven't they? But when our kids are our age, they won't even know their names. This means that that Lucy, this is the sobering thing for me, that our daughter Lucy, that her kids probably when they're my age, won't know my parents' names. And that her grandkids won't know my name. Aren't you glad you came to positive, encouraging Christ community this morning? I mean, nobody likes to think about it all coming to an end. And for the most of the time, we, like the guests at the party in the story, are are delightfully ignorant that that the wine is running dangerously low. But in Jesus' kingdom... In the space where Jesus gets done what he wants done. In in the place where God's will has come on earth as it is in heaven. The wine never runs out. In, In a world that is full of dead ends, Jesus offers something that is endless. He offers something limitless in a world that is so often defined by scarcity. He offers joy in a world that is marked by grief. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament describing the time when Messiah, when Jesus would come and restore the broken world, bring people back from their rebellion. When the kingdom comes, he invokes the imagery of wine. In Isaiah chapter 25, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and of aged wine well-refined. And again, in Isaiah 55, similar imagery says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. The picture is of the inexhaustible, gallons upon gallons of grace and joy at no cost. Everything ends except for the joy and life offered to us in and through Jesus. 
So the question is, why don't we turn to him more often? If we're that thirsty and his supply is never-ending, why don't we turn to him? And I think it's because even though every one of us still wants more, we doubt that Jesus could really do better. Most of the time, it's not that the satisfied are anti-Jesus. They just don't see how he can be better than what they already have. And this is actually exactly where the master of the feast is at in John's account. Listen again to what the master of the feast says in verses 9 and 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine at first. He thinks he's already had the best. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. You see, at that, that point in the party, the master of the feast thought he had already experienced the best that the party had to offer. But to his astonishment and surprise, he discovers that what Jesus had to offer was far beyond what he could have ever expected. This is exactly what happens to the satisfied when they encounter who Jesus really is and the sort of life he truly offers. They they are always a bit astonished and pleasantly surprised. It's like that moment when when you're on vacation and you, you fall to sleep that first night in the hotel room and you are dreaming about a stressful day at work and then all of a sudden you wake up and you're in that bed in the hotel and you're on vacation and you're pleasantly surprised and astonished. Ah, yes, that's not true. I'm not at work. I'm on vacation. You see, Mary, the disciples, they all came with expectations that day. But here's the thing. It is certainly possible to have wrong expectations about Jesus. And and lots of us have wrong expectations about Jesus. But let me tell you what it is impossible to do. The one thing it's impossible to have is too high of expectations for Jesus. Mary, the disciples, the guests, the master of the feast, they all had their expectations shattered that day. Jesus did something they could have hardly expected, something they could not even fully comprehend. And yet, in the face of this challenge to intellectual comprehension, the disciples, John tells us, they don't doubt, but rather they believe. So why, why is this? I think it's because, as Tim Keller puts it, Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. Your expectations can be wrong. They can't be too high. The disciples believed and it changed their world. The, the only way to find out, to really, truly taste, is to believe. But, but what does it mean to believe? And there's a lot we could say here, but just two things. First, what it doesn't mean. First, believing doesn't mean merely just agreeing with a set of ideas. And second, what does it mean to believe? Belief is something that affects the whole of who we are. Our, our head our heart, as well as our hands. There is something to know. There is true ideas that we need to know in order to believe in Jesus. But but there's also someone to love. Jesus is a person for whom belief in results in a deep affection. 
Belief affects who and what we love. When you truly come to believe and trust in Christ, he reorders your loves. And finally, there's something to do. Jesus is a person for whom, when we begin to believe in that belief, manifests itself in a willingness to and a longing to obey Jesus, to, as Mary put it to the servants, do what he tells us. Now, now it's crucial for us to remember at this point that this this miracle isn't just something that Jesus did in the past. This miracle of bringing greater joy and satisfaction to the satisfied is something that he keeps on doing. It actually reminds me of a, of a birthday card that uh, Rachel and I got for her brother last year. Um, he's also a pastor, and so you have to pardon a little bit of clergy humor here. But the, this is what the front says. Um, I don't know if you've seen this card. It says, Reverend, have you been drinking? And uh, just water, officer. And then on the inside, then, then why do I smell wine? Well, good Lord, he's done it again. Um, <laughs> Okay, so that's not exactly what I'm talking about when when he said Jesus continues to do uh, this miracle. Um, But this miracle of bringing greater joy and satisfaction to the satisfied is Jesus does continue to do this. And if if you've followed him, you know it truly is a miracle when he takes someone who's satisfied and brings a new and deeper satisfaction they never knew or thought was possible. And so I want us to end with a couple of next steps for reflection. And the first one is for all of us, no matter where we're at in our faith journey, whether we are a Christian or not. And that's this. What will you do when the wine runs out? I invite you to spend some time, no matter where you're at in your faith journey, spend some time thinking about that question this week. What will you do when the wine runs out? Where will you turn What are you filling yourself up with? And will it really last? What do you want your life to be built on five years from now, 20 years from now? What do you want to be remembered for in that relatively short time that people will remember you? And what do you need to do differently today as a result? My hope for all of us, for, for myself, is, is that we wouldn't wait until the wine runs out, but instead that we would drink deeply of what Jesus has to offer us today. And for some of you, that today would be the day you give your life to him. Have you ever thought that maybe your expectations of Jesus have just been way too low? can't be too high. An old psalm says, taste and see that the Lord is good. What will you do when the line runs out? And the other next step, this one's primarily for, for Christians. We need to reflect on this, and that's the question of how do you taste to the people around you? to everyone, but especially to those who don't believe. Because throughout this series, we're looking at how Jesus interacts with those outside of the faith, and we want to be able to share Jesus with others the way that Jesus shares himself with others. And and for many of us living in this part of the city, it means sharing Jesus with very satisfied people, at least on the outside. And so what do satisfied people need? 
The satisfied need a taste of something better. The satisfied need a taste of something better. And we who know Christ have drunk deeply of the very best wine. We have a never-ending well that is full of it. We have found a satisfaction without compare, haven't we? And so Christians ought to be the most joyful, the most flavorful people in the whole world. And yet some of us taste like a bottle of yellowtail from CVS. In other words, not that great. We're either just so judgmental or self-righteous or so caught up in being right all the time, which means that we're still just drinking the water of religious ritual, or we're so consumed with finding ultimate satisfaction in the same things as everyone else that, that we don't really live any differently. We're just keeping up with the Joneses, having the perfect family, living only for ourselves, which means that we're still just distracting ourselves with cheap wine. You see, our lives should be like a fine wine, handcrafted by Jesus himself. So how do you taste? And how are you finding ways to bring others into the same kind of joy and celebration that you have in your life, that Jesus has brought into yours? I mean, for example, Christians ought to throw the best parties We ought to have the best laughs and the biggest smiles. Jesus has risen from the dead. A new world is coming. So how can we give people a better taste? Well, this is just one idea. Have some people over. Like, actually have a party. Invite people over to celebrate. No agenda. Just invite them to come and share an evening together. Just to give them a taste. To love them. And actually this week we're going to be putting up a blog post with just five really easy tips for hosting a dinner. Some of you, that's, you do this all the time. You could host a dinner in your sleep. Others of us, having people go to our house, having a party, it's, it's a kind of a scary thing. So there's just going to be a few tips on the website this week of where, how do I get started in just inviting people over to my home, showing good hospitality. Check it out if you want some ideas. So what will you do when the wine runs out? When you believe in Jesus, this wine never runs out. I think Edmund Clowney said it best. He said, Jesus sat amidst all the joy of a wedding feast, sipping the coming sorrow, so that today you and I who believe in him can sit in all the sorrow of the world, sipping the coming joy. We drink deeply of joy and life without cost because it costs Jesus everything. And in this, in Jesus' death on the cross, we see his glory at the highest. The cross of shame becomes the gateway to glory. Jesus prays shortly before he goes to the cross, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, that they would be with me and become where I am so that they may see the glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus says to the skeptic, come and see, but he says to the satisfied, taste and see. Discover the fulfillment of the longing you never knew you had. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you make available to us in Jesus the wine of joy and life and hope.
pray that we would drink deeply of it. Show us where we're being satisfied with things that are just so much less. Rescue us from having too low of expectations of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, maybe you've wondered at times, why do we celebrate communion every week at the Brookside campus? Well, this passage is actually one of the reasons why, and I love what Tim Keller says about this passage. He writes that every time you participate in the Lord's Supper by faith, you are getting a foretaste of this incredible feast. Even if right now you are in the midst of sorrow, sip the coming joy. There is only one love, only one feast, only one thing that can give your heart what it really needs, and they all await you. Knowing that you have something that will knowing that you have something that will enable you to face anything. So that's the reason why we do this every single week as a reminder, a tangible reminder of a foretaste of what is coming. That we have a deep and bedrock joy that cannot be shaken. That's it. That's why we celebrate. And so if you're new with us, I just want to give you some instructions on how this works here at Christ Community. We have four communion stations around the room. There's two in the back, and then there's two here in the front. And we celebrate in groups. So just come together in groups of four or five people, gather around, and then take the bread, dip it into the cup, and when everyone's done that, then um, take the elements together. You don't have to be a member with us at Christ Community to celebrate uh, communion with us. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you have believed as the disciples did here in this text, you're welcome at his table. Come. Um, if you haven't embraced Jesus, if you're sitting here and you're still trying to figure out what does it really mean to follow him, what does it really mean to believe, I'm just not sure yet. I just invite you to use this time to continue thinking, praying. Ponder that question, what will I do when the wine runs out? This is a safe place. I hope you feel that to explore and ask your questions. So Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread And after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus calls us to do this in remembrance of him. So this morning, as you come to the table, come and have a foretaste of the glory that is coming, of the joy and the satisfaction that Jesus offers, life without end. Also, if there's anything that you would want prayer for during the service this morning, we have people available to pray with you back here near the sound booth. would love to invite you to, to participate in that way as well. So come to the table when you're ready and taste the joy and life that Jesus offers. Come when you're ready.